It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hello and welcome everyone. Welcome, welcome. This is a very, very special live version or live podcast episode of Miked Up. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and we're here with some amazing guests. First and foremost, let me just shout out who brought me here. We're here with the itinerant literate, uh, the Charleston Bookmobile, as I call them. They read. They reached out to me and asked me, you know, would I like to participate in this discussion, discussing a very, very, very dope book. And um, so I, I, when I read the book, I'm like, okay, it's got my interest. And so they said, yeah, we're going to do a book signing with the authors of the book. So we're here with the authors of the book. We have Ethan Keitel and we have Blaine Roberts. The, the name of that book is Denmark VC's Garden. All right, and, and if you're here live with us, uh, you got a book with your ticket, so that's a dope, you know, situation right there. <laughs> they also looked out for me, so I could read this as well. I also want to just give a shout out to our engineers, our our just couples over this couple over here, Do Work Media. They're doing awesome. They're gonna record our podcast, and it'll be available on both Do Work Media's platform as well as the Charleston Activist Network. So just um, give yourself another another round of applause. Thank you guys <laughs> for being here. Uh, and before we, we do this, and, and I'm, I'm taking time, um, the more I do events publicly, the more I, I do anything in the community, I want to take some time. I know we have um, some people enjoying meals downstairs, but I, I just want to take, take some time to kind of set the mood right. This book is actually a great read. Um, I found it exhilarating. I found it thought-provoking. I couldn't put it down for like three days straight. Um, but it is some heavy material here, right? There's some real truths being told. And um, I want to start by just reading what they included um, in the beginning but what would you call this part of the book the epigraph the epigraph um, before we jump into the Q&A with the authors I want to just read the epigraph it's from W.E.B. Du Bois and when I when I finish that I just want to have a moment of silence to center um, folks of color who are not in this room ancestors who have passed on the folks that I believe that this book has a has a potential to honor. I want to have a moment of just brief silence before we jump into the Q and A, just to kind of just again center the right voices and the right spirit. So so here we go. It says here, in Charleston, is a subtle flavor of old world things, a little hush in the world of American doing, between her guardian rivers and looking across the sea toward Africa sits this little old lady her cheek teasingly tinged to every tantalizing shade of the darker blood. With her shoulder ever toward the street and her little laced and rusty fan beside her cheek, while long verandas of her soul stretch down the backyard into slavery. And just thank you so much for just indulging me with that. I, I just really thought that um, when I read this book, again, it's exhilarating, it's exciting, um, because I learned so much about the city I call home, Charleston. And I'm just so happy to have the, 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 the two people who are responsible for this work right here. And so with that, we'll just jump in. This is, might be a little clunky. Um, I'm not one for you know too much pomp and circumstance, but <laughs> I try to prepare a little bit. I did read the book. 
right. All right. So welcome again, Ethan, and welcome, Blaine. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this special edition of Miked Up with the Itinerant Literate Books. Um, first and foremost, I want to ask the, the question. I want to ask the question of what made you write this book? <laughs> What made us write this book? Um, how many of you have maybe started the book or read it? Anyone? Just a couple of people. Okay. Oh, sorry, Kristen. Okay. Well, um, let we'll start with a story, a, a personal story that is in in many ways the jumping off point for us. Um, we met. We're married, by the way. <laughs> That's relevant. Um, we survived writing a book together. We did. It's possible. It is possible. We can give you some tips. Uh, so we met in graduate school. We got our PhDs at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So in 2005, we were living in Chapel Hill, and we were preparing to move here to Charleston. Um, I had gotten a job at the Citadel, and Ethan had gotten a job at the Avery Research Center at the College of Charleston. And so it was June 2005. We needed to find a place to live. So we got in our car one June morning in Chapel Hill and drove down here. We had a list of maybe six to eight apartments to look at. So we get here, and it turned out that the first house on our list was the basement floor of a really beautiful antebellum home in downtown Charleston. We didn't know that when we booked the appointment, but that's what it was. So we knocked on the door, and the homeowner welcomed us inside. And we were looking at this basement apartment and kind of just making small talk, you know, as we were walking through the house. And the owner knew a lot about the house. And so we were just saying, well, you know, when was it built? Who were the people who lived here? And at one point, one of us said, well, how would this space that we're looking at right now, how would this have been used by the original owners before the Civil War? And she said, well, this would have been the workspace of the servants. And so one of us said, oh, of the slaves. Blaine said it. It was me. <laughs> we say we in here, but... It's say. true. It was me. Okay, it was me. You know, there's nothing like a like freshly minted PhD to be obnoxious. <laughs> I said, of the slaves. And she came back and she said, no of the servants, and then she said, there's no evidence in the historical, historical record that they weren't paid. There's no evidence <laughs> in the historical <laughs> record that they weren't paid. And that's exactly right. He went, what? <laughs> My mom was a high school English teacher, and she would call that a very interesting example of a double negative. Yeah. Pregnant double negative. Yeah, pregnant double negative. Something like that. So that was, I mean, we had been to Charleston before to do the um, Cooper River Bridge, Bridge run, run and all research. that kind of stuff, and do some research for our, our first books. But that, in many ways, was an introduction to how some white Charlestonians um, have attempted to downplay or ignore the history of slavery in Charleston. And we lived here for two years, and we kept having things happen like that. Like that one tour? Oh, sure, yeah. I, um, so one, one of the great things, I'm sure many of you know, uh, those of you who live here, uh, is when you have family come to town, outsiders come to town, you take tours with them. Uh, and so we did that a lot, and we had folks come in, and, and 
um, one carriage tour. Um, I think it, well, I probably shouldn't name no. the carriage yeah. tour. <laughs> I probably won't talk about the company, won't out anyone. Um, so but we took one carriage tour with um, some family members and riding through downtown Charleston somewhere, I can't remember. Uh, and the guide, um, she was talking about the, the demographics of Charleston. And she said, uh, so Charleston was early Charleston, Charleston in the 1700s. She said that it was made up of 85% uh, English people. And she said, and the other 15%, and she may have even asked the question, Would you, what, you know, what do you all think, she asked us. And, and the answer, the other 15% were, were French Huguenots. So that was her neat and tidy description of Charleston, which, as I'm sure many of you know, and which we certainly knew, um, was a black majority, an enslaved majority city in the 1700s. But in her imagination, that they had been completely whitewashed out of wow. Charleston's past. That's amazing, though. I think that's something we encounter as Charlestonians so often. It's amazing that you picked up on that, that erasure of a whole people and culture. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we, we ended up actually calling that tradition of remembering and misremembering the whitewashed memory of slavery. So we, we kind of, we label it that. Yeah. Right, to sort of give away maybe our, our, our central theme, our central thesis. But please read the book, even if we tell you this stuff. <laughs> right, you know, I, I There are a lot of stuff we won't talk about that's also. No, 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 I asked before we began if there were any spoilers. There is one spoiler we're going to just go ahead and divulge right now. So is Denmark Vesey's garden about Denmark Vesey? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler I mean, alert. Sort of, sort of, yes, yeah, but, but not really. No, not he's definitely, yeah. yeah definitely. And, 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 and yeah. it's also, yeah, to be clear, you know, it's a book that's about the memory. It's not a history of slavery, and it's not a history of Denmark Vesey and his uh, would-be insurrection um, from 1822. It's about how slavery has been remembered over the last 150 years. So we do do a short sort of overview of the history of slavery in Charleston, and we do talk a little bit about the insurrection. Um, but at the same time, VC kind of haunts our book, um, uh, which is one of the many reasons um, we used him in the, in the title. That's a really good way to describe it, because yeah, uh, he pops up. Again and again. But yeah, it's not, it's, it's not, uh, yeah. I don't want to disappoint anyone and have anyone walk out. <laughs> if you were looking um, for like that riveting tale yeah. of the rebellion. Well, in some ways, um, the, so garden. Um, yeah, where, where is Denmark VC's garden? Right, okay. So <laughs> sort of about a uh, half mile that way. Yeah. Um, garden, as you probably know, was the longtime euphemism for area plantations. Um, and the marketing of plantations as gardens... Well, it still goes on, right? Still goes yeah, on. And it really kind of took root not that long after the Civil War was over. Mm -hmm. Northern uh, travelers, tourists, were coming mm -hmm. down in the 1870s and 1880s. And locals were marketing these places as gardens. So in one sense, the word garden is kind of the embodiment of that whitewashed memory of mm -hmm. slavery erasing the brutal realities, erasing the pain. And then Denmark Vesey is really the embodiment of the other tradition of memory that we talk about, and we call that the unvarnished memory. And the unvarnished memory is the memory that says slavery was awful and brutal and inhumane. And central to the forming of Charleston and the South Carolina and the country as a whole. That's right. So the title is really meant to kind of capture those two competing memories of slavery, if you will. With this other kind of component that Denmark Vesey does haunt the book because we argue that he has haunted the city. Absolutely. Since Absolutely. 1822. Right, right. He has haunted every single space in this city, mm -hmm. every single yeah. thing that has, that has happened. Yeah, I, I remember uh, being haunted by Denmark Vesey um, after post-Charlottesville, and there was mm -hmm. a re local response that I wasn't really 
thrilled with um, that try to conflate, you know, whatever. But uh, uh, yeah, so yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, but the mentioning of his insurrection came up. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say this um, after reading the book. I think what really grabbed my attention was the decision. You, and this is a decision. I have to actually say this was a decision you guys made to be as unapologetic and as honest. The language used. You don't refer to things as. Uh, you don't you don't refer to them in like PC terms. Mm. You call an insurrection insurrection. You call a rebellion. You call slavery what it is. It's that unvarnished truth. What what went into making that decision to be as bold? And did you have any issues with that in terms of editing mm. or any resistance? Uh, um, well, we didn't have any disagreement among ourselves, I'm and sure certainly not any res- <laughs> nor resistance um, right. uh, from from any of our editors uh, or our publisher. I think in part, you know. We really we wanted to write a book that would attract as wide an audience as we could. You know, we are both academics. We've written books before that were aimed at a more scholarly audience. You know, you want everyone to read it, but you, you ultimately know mostly it's going to be scholars. And so, I don't know if this um, played a role in precisely our the language we use, but but certainly it played a role in in us being as clear and forthright about um, the political stakes in. Uh, the memory of slavery, that, that it's not just an academic conversation. It's not just something that scholars should be talking about, but it matters in the world today. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was clear to us before, uh, you know, the Emanuel tragedy from three years ago, but it became even clearer with that. And so I think that in some ways pushed us to, 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 to underline um, the, the real world stakes, to underline why, why we couldn't sort of um, be a little more cautious. Right. I, you know, um, that this book is so timely. I don't know. I want to. The question is going to be this: uh, What led you to, to write the book now, or following your experience? I know you lived in Charleston for two years. That was in 07? Yes, yeah, 2005 to 2007. Right. Um, but what the book came out. It's coming out, and it references recent tragedies and atrocities like the Emanuel Nine massacre, um, and it goes into a lot of current day things. Even goes up to to our current president. Mm. Um, excuse me, your current president. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's just me. I don't think there are many. Yeah, right. I'm an activist, y'all, first and foremost. <laughs> don't let the, the dress, no, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but I guess uh, my question is, what led you to write this book now? Well, now, oh. to be honest, <laughs> yes. was about nine years. Oh, so okay. you know, it, I mean, it, no, it, it took you nine. Like, it, it, that's great, though. Sort that's, of. I mean, yeah. we, we did finish up a lot of other, several other projects, including right. books on the way. But, but yeah, we in okay. some ways were working on this for a long time. So, so we, uh, it changed along the way, and, and and the context changed how we wrote the book. Oh. But yeah, but we were writing this book. I mean, it our la- what we thought was our last research trip happened three years ago. We were meeting with the mayor, we- Mayor Riley, then Mayor Riley, mm-hmm. the day of that, the shooting, so three years ago tomorrow. We and met him that, that, that morning. Yeah. Um, and so, and that was on our last research, what we thought was our last research trip. We ended up having to do more, uh, in part because of all that happened afterwards and needing to come back and to document that and to make that a part of the story. Yeah, so I mean, so it, it was, it was long, Kind of, there was a long gestation, mm-hmm. but I think one of the things that we realized over the course of, of the research and coming back here is how much, how important memory is in Charleston. Five million people come here every year. Wow, five million. And what, fifty million <laughs> move here every. every <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Most right. of them go away. At least. Right, some of them. So, <laughs> some of them. I mean, I would just stand by the argument that 
Charleston, or the contention, Charleston, Boston, Philadelphia. I mean, are there any other cities, maybe New Orleans, in the United States that that sell history in the way that Charleston does? I mean, I think Charleston's right up there. No, right? So we do, felt do, like... Do you think, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but do you think other cities are a little bit more honest in the retelling? Because I lived in <laughs> Philadelphia good. for 10 years. I kind of like, you know, mm. I'm a little Benjamin Franklin out, but um, but no, but do you feel like other cities... Yeah, I think most cities struggle with their... Un- the unpleasant, uncomfortable parts of their past. Um, so I don't think Charleston is unique in the fact that it wasn't, it's not until recently that it's even started to talk about the history of slavery. Um, in some ways, Charleston actually is, and I, don't get me wrong, I don't, I, think, I don't think Charleston does a good job yet, but they've done, they do a lot better job now than when we lived here in 2000, from 2005 to 2007. And in some ways, they do better than a lot of southern, other southern cities in terms of dealing with slavery. They do better than New Orleans. Uh, absent the monument issue, right. they do better than New Orleans. Now, New Orleans has started to catch up a little bit, and Charleston Definitely. needs to go mm-hmm. a lot longer, right. uh, a lot further. Right. But but um, but I think most cities struggle with it. But because history is so central to Charleston's tourism industry, being accurate and being right about this part of its past mm. is essential. It matters. You know, it's called itself America's most historic city since the 1920s. The mayor proclaimed it America's most yeah. historic city in the 1920s. And so if you're going to make that claim, <laughs> then, tell the truth. Yeah, right. you know, you have a responsibility right. to tell the truth. And so I think that's one of the things that weighed on us as we lived here and then as we moved uh, to California, which I wouldn't advise. Don't write a book about a place you leave. I mean, it's very difficult to come back and, you know, get all this research done, but we didn't. No, I, I guess I, I have a question. It's not specifically about the subject matter in the book, but your time here, your brief two years here, did you speak to locals, like, just out of just natural curiosity? Did you talk to a lot of folks here, natives, black and white, or what did you do? Like, how did you become part of the community? Uh, good question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, good question. Well, so I taught at the Citadel, which was a very different experience than... So I worked for, well, I taught for at the Citadel for one year, but the year before that I was a, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Avery Center. Oh, wow. Um, which, uh, that in, in many ways opened, um, not my eyes, but it gave me a different look into to, uh, Charleston's community, really into the black community. Um, we had an after-school program working with uh, fifth graders um, from six or seven different schools where we would do um, basically a, a course in, in African-American history, um, take them to plantations. In fact, some of, um, I think, my, my earliest thinking um, on this book came out of that and, and, and bringing, um, you know, group 20, 25 um, students uh, from uh, Sanders Clyde, Sanders Clyde, yeah, is that right? Yeah, yeah Sanders yeah. Clyde Elementary School uh, to, where was it, the Aiken Rett House. Um, and on several consecutive days, so it was several, uh, uh, several different school groups we took there, and seeing the very different tours that they got, and, and one tour really stuck out to me where this uh, very elderly docent, very, very nice woman, but she, she, we were, you know, in this beautiful antebellum mansion, and she was talking about how they used to dance the night away, and it was a, it was a Gone with the Wind, Moonlight and Magnolia story that she was telling to these uh, kids who d- didn't connect with them at all, didn't connect with their history, their past, and, and to me that, that stuck out as the way that too many tourism operators and too many house museums were, uh, were, were approaching the past and approaching and avoiding, whitewashing the issue of slavery. Slavery did not come out of her, the word did not come out of her mouth. Yeah. 
Wow. All right, so my major experience was with students at the Citadel, uh, which of course is an institution that was originally founded in the wake of Denmark VZ's uprising right. to better police the so slave population. I'm gonna hold you right there. Yeah. I'm telling you, um, <laughs> I knew that. I knew the Citadels, uh-huh. I knew, I, uh, air quotes for those listening. I knew what it, but I was like, okay, wait a minute. They built this as a response yeah. to, to I'm sorry. Yes. I'm sorry. That was just my moment yes. of, ooh. Sure. Yeah. But, it's true, yeah. But, yeah, go ahead. You were at the Citadel. Right. <laughs> sorry so, to interrupt. So my main interaction with the community was with students. Yeah. And um, so that's, it's, an, it's an interesting place to teach and to, to talk about history because there are quite a few students who come in having grown up in the whitewashed tradition, you know, having gotten it at school. One of my most distinct memories is teaching a class where we were doing a lot about Civil War causation. So I'll say this, another part of the whitewashed memory is this contention that slavery did not cause the Civil War. Which okay. is a lie. Can we establish that is a baseline. That is not true. Can we establish that? So yeah. I was teaching a class for history majors where we were kind of doing major problems in American history where you take an issue and you look at what historians have written, this kind of thing. So it was Civil War causation. And uh, we did that, and then it was time for the midterm. So my midterm question was, what caused the Civil War? And this particular student, I will never forget this, wrote, this was all he wrote. He may not have studied that much, but he learned the lesson. He said, I surrender, it was slavery. Oh, wow. Wow. A student who had sort of pushed back throughout the semester. He had pushed back. Right. I surrender, and that was it. Wow. That's all he wrote. That's yeah. Amazing. That's amazing. I, you know, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> she was tempted, I think, to give him an A. I really wanted to give him an A, sort of. But, I mean, when you're writing a blue book exam, you do have to write an essay. So. <laughs> I, I, got, I wanted to know, like, what do you um, attribute that reflex to so many folks that want to erase or whitewash this history? What do you call that reflex when you encounter it at a tour, at a house, at a tour on a house trip? What do you call that? I mean, I, I think it's a learned reflex. Mm. So in, in the sense that it's not natural, I think, and we sort of take it as natural, but, but this whitewashed memory, this, this lost cause tradition to, to, to downplay slavery or, or to argue that the Civil War is about something like states' rights is something that was, you know, uh, the, is the product of a deliberate propaganda campaign. Wow. That, that has gone on for 150 years. We know what that looks like, right? Propaganda. <laughs> I'm just saying. And, and so, so, you know, it's learned. And Charleston right. was central to that propaganda campaign. So if you, when you read the book, you will uh, see that in one of the chapters we talk a lot about the news and courier in the early 20th century and how much the editors there were invested in this issue of trying to erase the real cause of the Civil War. There were really important UDC officers here, United Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very important women in Charleston who had a national reach and national influence. Still, and, and, still and they, influential. Yeah, still yeah. influential. Yeah. They went to city by city, and, and, and they would, you know, in Columbia, they're teaching this book. We need to get this book out, out of, of the classrooms, and we need to teach this book because it's, it's celebrating the Confederacy or celebrating the Old South. And then they did it in Charleston, they did it in Columbia, and they yeah. did it nationwide. Yeah. And, it, and it's true. I mean, we live in California, um, and you'd think this sort of thinking is, is just a, a southern thing, but it's not just a southern thing. It's a national thing in many cases, yeah. um, certainly in central California where we live. Yeah. But, you know, this, this issue of why do it and why are people so defensive, I, I don't know. We've been trying to grapple with this recently. 
we, we talk a little bit about it at the end. You know, a yeah. lot of people, when you talk about um, your Confederate ancestors and criti criticize the cause of the Confederacy, feel personally criticized, right? Like you're personally indicted. Indicted. indicted you're yes, indicting you're right. me. Yeah, that's a better word. Yeah. Um, and of course, that's not exactly what's happening. We're saying this is a part of your family history. It doesn't make you a bad person, but I think a lot of people mm -hmm. feel like they are indicted, they are bad people, if they admit the, the truth. And so, you know, we have to find a way to help them think about it and talk about it in ways that are honest. Um, you know, I, I have probably half a dozen Confederate fighting ancestors. That's a lowball figure. That's lowball. <laughs> I mean, my family was from Barnwell, South Carolina, oh, wow. and followed the spread of King Cotton into the Deep South. They ended up in Louisiana. That's, that's what was going on. And, you know, I have found a way to talk about that and to realize the ways in which my life has been shaped by that. Um, and I can do that. Um, and not feel personally indicted, but I also have a, a degree of awareness and responsibility for kind of what that means for my family. Right. You know? I think that last part you just referenced, when you guys do complete the book, you sum it up. Um, you sum it up in a, in a very, I'm going to use the word neat, and it's, and it's not pushback per se, but I would say that um, I think at the end, you, you, you let people understand that they don't have to feel personally indicted. Um, non non people people who are not people of color you don't have to feel indicted however my, i guess my only little pushback is mm -hmm. do you think they have a responsibility though oh yeah to do, what, oh, what, and what is that responsibility ethan if you want to yeah yeah well i mean I, I i think the first responsibility starts with telling the truth right. and, and and being able to talk about not being so scared because that's really what this this um reaction you're talking about is it's it's a first reaction of lying and not being willing to look the past square in the face and say here's what happened uh i don't think that's the end that's the beginning but that's where that's in some ways that's some places that's, that's the stage we're at that people aren't even willing to talk about mm -hmm. it and acknowledge it and own up to to the reality of what um, this country was like for its first several hundred years. Um, uh, so that's part of it. Right. I think there's lots more that can be done and, and should be done and, and need to be done. And, and I certainly don't think um, us fully acknowledging the history of slavery in the United States is going to solve a lot of the racial, all of the racial problems that we have today. That's, you know, there's, they go far deeper. Um, they last far longer. There's a much longer history that extends beyond um, 1865, the, uh, the legacy of which we need to deal with. So it's, that's a start. But to be able to, to make that start, I think, is, is a responsibility. I absolutely think it's a responsibility. Yeah. And there, there is a correlation we argue at the end of the book, between your memory of slavery and what your position is on a lot of policy and political issues, right? Oh. Say that one more time. <laughs> this is real. Yeah, there is a correlation sure. between your memory of slavery yes. and your position on a number of policy and political issues today. Right. Absolutely. And you can actually see it in the polling data. It yeah. breaks down along party lines. Um, so that conservatives or members of today's modern-day Republican Party are less likely to say that slavery caused the Civil War, mm -hmm. uh, less likely to believe that it was central to the nation's history. Or to think we should spend a lot of time teaching about it in schools. That's right. They're not as concerned with that. And then to see how those positions play out in uh, opinions about things like mass incarceration, reparations, uh, school segregation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can kind of track it. So we, we deal with that at the end of the book to get at this larger question of why does memory matter? 
It's not just about the past. I mean, it, it's in many cases about the past, but there are contemporary ramifications to how we remember. And it's not just about uh, extremists and, and, and violent white supremacists like at Charlottesville and like here three years ago. It's about them, but it's about a whole larger set of people who will apologize for them or who will just look the other way and, and, and go along with policies that they might support, uh, that they certainly stand for. Um, they need to be implicated in this too. I think there's a, there's a uh, I've been teaching young high school age students about microaggressions and how violent they are. And um, I believe the erasure of our history and of our truth is, is a very, very violent act. Um, again, it, it doesn't have to look like Charlottesville. It doesn't have to look like tiki torches mm -hmm. um, and, you know, chanting horrible things. It's, it's the closing of public schools. It's the, you know, gentrification. It's a lot of things that I think people aren't, um, don't, look at as violent and mm -hmm. um, I think it's important that mm -hmm. yeah I think that's another reason why this book it, hit, it drives that point mm -hmm. home um, I mentioned how timely this book was I know it was a labor of love over uh, a few years um, but yesterday I don't know if you guys saw the uh, headline of the Post and Courier uh, so I'll read it to you okay. Okay. You know, cause I keep we were at the beach oh the so. city council <laughs> oh good for you that's good yeah no 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 uh, the city well the city's considering right. um, issuing an apology for uh, mm. Charleston's role in slavery mm -hmm. and I mean um, I only read the first I, I didn't have the stomach to read some of the only because it's my mind um, it is you know Juneteenth is upon us right. and, and so much history in, the, in this city what do you think that apology or what how do you think Charleston should make the first steps it's not a plaque in front of Cal Calhoun <laughs> statue. To me, it's not sufficient. But how should that apology like look? Right. <laughs> That's a tough one. Just I mean, give your yeah, opinion. Yeah. Well, you email the city councilman just yesterday. I did email oh, city councilman Gregory to say that that especially because it, at least in the the summary of it in in the Post and Courier, um, I didn't find uh, the actual text of the resolution. But the summary suggested that it wasn't just going to be an apology. That it wasn't just about words. That there was going to be the idea was that there'd be more behind that, and 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 frankly, I emailed him because I also wanted I wanted to say, hey, this is an important thing. I'm glad you're doing this. I'm not a Charlestonian. I lived here for a few years, but I have spent a lot of time thinking about the way it remembers slavery, and I wanted to share with him some of um, some of what his. Uh, former, uh, his forebears of, of sort uh, on Predecessor, the council, predecessors yeah. on the council had said uh, uh, pretty awful things they had said about how important and civilizing slavery was. In 1856, I think it was, they, they put out an official city council declaration, um, you know, saying that, that we value slavery, that people have been criticizing it from the north, they are wrong, and that this community, um, it, it's central to this community. And, and I, I wanted to tell them that, that I appreciated that, that the city council was taking a step to effectively push back against that. But um, I would love to see what he and others who are involved, I think they're talking about starting a committee to, to decide what to do with that should the resolution pass. I'd like to see what they, they think should be done. Um, and I, it's not just a plaque uh, under the Calhoun Monument, I'm, I'm sure, um, but, but I don't know what that means. Yeah, I mean, I think a resolution like that is really important, particularly when you are an institution that has had, you know, these, this 1856 kind of resolution and proclamation mm -hmm. to kind of say, okay, we get that we were wrong. Um, and it kind of gets back to his earlier point that, that, that telling the truth is important, but that's only a first step, right? Because, I mean, what would you have to do? 
what would you have to do in a city like Charleston? Reparations. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and well, in and, and some way, I mean, you know, yeah. Ta-Nehisi Coates talked yeah. about how telling the truth is the first step towards reparations. That, mm-hmm. that it, it doesn't have to be the last, but it is a, a form of that. Because until you do that, people aren't willing to talk about anything else, right? right? Whether it's individual or institutional reparations, um, no, no matter what, if they're, if they're not talking about what happened and admitting what happened, they're not going to go further than that. Yeah. And, and um, so talk, uh, keeping kind of in, in line with that last question about what that apology should look like and, and kind of just reconciling with the history, do you think this city, do you think white political will in the city will actually lead to some progress? Do, mm. I mean, I know mm. you said it's changing. <laughs> it's changing. Things are changing. Um, and they are. I think transplants, the, the, the landscape has shifted. Um, I myself am returning in some way, mm-hmm. returning um, to the South. There's a reverse migration yeah. going on with the African Americans returning about 14 million, I think. Not 14. Well, there's a, a huge number that came back in 2014. So what, what does it, will, uh, I guess, will we be able to overcome white political will and that's what it is i'm just being very Mm -hmm. candid um and get to some sort of resolution (laughs) i know Uh, yeah well i mean you all actually would probably have a better sense of the the kind of granular level of detail right of local politics i mean clearly i do think that the transplants matter i am not i think we're going to get a lot of these symbolic statements of truth this is what happened we'll get more markers Right? We'll get some historical markers. I'm not sure that we're going to get to the level of these structural changes that need to happen. I, so I, I think my answer to your question is a, a version of no. Yeah. Well, and I still think, and also the, the state local challenge, the, you know, the state is going to put up so, so many barriers that, that even if the local will, yeah. Um, like the Heritage Act, right, 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 like the Heritage Act and and, and, and other things. Right. Um, I think oh, the yeah. state, you know, this just funding, um, yeah. th- that sort of thing. That that it's hard to. Uh, I hate to be glass half empty, but but I'm 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 not a hundred percent optimistic that that can happen. Uh, things there are all sorts of problems or things uh, problems that haven't been resolved over the last 40 45 years um, uh, as Charleston's local politics has shifted um, as the city itself has become um, gone from being controlled by um, uh, white conservatives to a, a more biracial political order that's somewhat liberal um, important changes have happened but a lot of stuff hasn't happened so I'm not so optimistic that, that we're gonna see a, a sea change um, in the near future. Particularly with the, the gentrification of the peninsula, I think that that is, you know, that's a huge uh, transformation. I mean, it's been going on for a very, very long time, but it seems to be accelerating. Again, we're not on the ground, but every time I come back, I, I feel like the peninsula has continued to yeah. become whiter and whiter and whiter, yeah. and I think that that matters. Right, and that's by design for sure. Mm-hmm. So to that point, um, early on in your book, you talk about because I believe it was right uh, following, it was a per- period where it was following the end of slavery and the peninsula was all tore up, for lack of a better term, and it was majority majority black, right? It was more, there were, of course, there were yeah. more blacks after yeah. slavery. Yeah. But, yeah. So wh- t- how, how did that change or what yeah. did that do to folks and how did they respond? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that, and I'll, maybe you could talk about slavery is dead. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that was the most surprising or, um, uh, ref- I don't know, refreshing, was learning how much the unvarnished memory of slavery dominated in the city for years after the Civil War. So we've now had a conversation for about half an hour about whitewashing. Early on, it was completely unvarnished. 
and it would have been at least really, in the public spaces. In the public spaces, it would have been amazing to be here. Sure. That, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, from you know Charleston. Um, it, it, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please, I, I, please. Again, um, when you start reading the book, that's a that's another watershed moment. I believe in the book is when you see how how black women, especially, yeah, you know, paraded and, and did things that were once like wearing colors. You know, um, just that unvarnished. Reality. I would have loved to have seen and revisit that that period. But go yeah. ahead. I'm so sorry. Oh, let, me, let me ask you a question. How many people in here who, who haven't read the book? Um, so if you've read this and you know this, don't give me the official <laughs> answer. But who haven't read the book have heard of Tulalu. Tulalu. I posted about it on Facebook. Oh, no, 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 no
another. I'm bringing that back. I'm just letting y'all know. Y'all, y'all know I can throw a rally. That's good. Y'all, I, I think can we throw a rally. Those again. Bringing that back. We would actually love to see a historical oh, marker yeah. at White Point Garden yeah. uh, for Tulalu. Tulalu. Because marker. it was. You're right. It was. It's about women participating yeah. in a time when yes. women didn't participate, weren't able to participate politically very often and in yep. public very often. And it was. Uh, and it wasn't just political elites. It was. It was everyday folk. People came from all around Sea Islands. They descended. You know, it, it, these are major yeah. moments that wow. should be remembered, and a marker is a start. And you know, I we I, I even posted about this because I was rereading a portion of the book this morning about if we don't learn history, we're doing repeated. And I mean, I recently we've seen if, if you are if you live in Charleston, you've seen the legislation that polices. The, the young boys who want to create the palmetto roses uh, yeah. um, and, and pushing oh, yeah. again pushing it's, it's the same right it's the same thing yeah. we're seeing we're reading in our history books repeating themselves and you can put I believe you can you can call it whatever you want but it is policing of black culture and that's going to lead me to my other question because the the what really wrapped my attention um, I live on Wadmalaw Island mm-hmm. okay. so I got to the part about the echoes mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. but in the SPS I'm like oh my goodness so between the daughters of the Confederacy and the SPS, I'm like, I'm done. Um, <laughs> um, but I wanted to say, uh, owning black culture, it was a big part of the book. Yes. So Blaine, like, like, so we know, talk a little bit about SPS and what they did to, okay. to take Gullah and African-American culture mm-hmm. from. Have you all heard of the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals? Okay, one. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, In 1922, a new organization was founded in Charleston called the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals, and it existed to preserve slave spirituals for posterity. And this group performed all over town for tourists in the Francis Marion, in the Fort Sumter Hotel, which is now condos down on the Battery. They even toured the East Coast. They went up to New York City, they went up to Boston, they performed for FDR and Eleanor in the White House, and they were white. <laughs> That's what I said. I had yeah. to go back. I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. And there's a there's a picture of them. You yeah. can see it. And we went, oh, a picture of them. Yeah. I, I got my Wamala folklore, but I don't have so, that. Yeah. So they were white. And these these were kind of professionals, the, the men, you know, lawyers and doctors and bankers and whatnot, who lived on the peninsula and their wives, and but they had been born on or grown up on area plantations hearing this music from the descendants of slaves. But they had moved to town and they were nostalgic for this music of their childhood. Which, you know, okay. Air air quotes. For for the podcast. For the podcast people. (laughs) But what this society did is they dressed in the costume of antebellum slave owners. So the women were in these hoop skirts and the men were in the kind of tuxedo thing. And they sang these songs and they did the gullah, I mean, the the pronunciation, they stomped, they clapped, they tried to mimic the- Like Al Jolson, but like better? Like, (laughs) I don't know, sorry. But the most amazing, well, I don't know what the most amazing thing is, but one of the amazing things is that- You can look at them if you have page 206. Page 206, yeah. Okay, sorry about that. Everybody, join in. I earmarked all the- (laughs) I mean, hey, we got got visuals. so. Um, So, during their performances, uh, you know, they would stop and talk to the audience and explain the music. 
And one of the most amazing things that they would do was to give kind of history lessons about slave spirituals and say very explicitly that these slave spirituals were not songs of suffering and not <laughs> songs laughable. of protest, that they were not what they were. They said these are simply songs of Christian devotion, Christian spirituality, and so really just sapped them of their meaning and their history. And they were wildly popular. I'll just read you what one of them wrote, if I could. This is, this is by uh, one member of the society, Carolyn Pinckney Rutledge. The Society for the Preservation of Spirituals is anxious to correct the erroneous yet general impression that spirituals were slave music or the music of bondage sung by a race in their oppression or degradation, she wrote. And then she added, the life of, of the plantation Negro of our coastal section prior to the war between the states, as attested by those few living today, was a happy one. They were well housed, well clothed, and well fed, and were as free from care as irresponsible children. There's, sorry, that's, but that, that nothing sums up the whitewashed memory of slavery better than those words. So, and believe it or not, believe it, there were competitors. There were what? two. Wait, 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 there's white people dueling the. <laughs> there were two other white groups, but the most interesting group was the Plantation Echoes. Yes, yes. Right. The Plantation Echoes were uh, comprised of That's 50, on page 220. 50 um, yeah, there's a picture of uh, several of them. Yes. Uh, 50 African-Americans. Um, were they all from Wadmala Island? I can't yeah, remember. They were, um, they were. Uh, Island. Uh, several, what, four or five, I think, uh, had been born slaves as young children. We're, we're pretty old at that point because this is in the 1930s. Um, uh, and they were directed by uh, a white woman who said when she wrote about them that, that she put this group together because they were very poor. This is the Depression. A lot of people are poor. If you're African-American, you're particularly poor during the Depression. And so she said this was a way we were, they would perform spirituals um, uh, sometimes um, in competition with uh, these white groups performing them. You know, she, she organized these groups that, because she said they, she wanted to raise uh, money for them to help them support themselves. Uh, one of the challenging things we faced in this book uh, was that we really don't have their voice, the members of the, that, besides their, we, we actually their recordings, and you can listen to recordings of them, uh, but we don't have their interpretations of this music or their interpretations of this experience, what it was like, whether they enjoyed this or not, what they made of, the, of this music. Um, did we, they feel like they were being put on right. display? Right. Or did they feel like this was an opportunity to counter what the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals was doing? It's difficult to know because we don't have records right. or interviews with them. But one of the, certainly one of the most striking things um, that we, we knew a little bit about this as we started diving into this book, this, this, this history of these performers, but the fact that this was a central part to the formation of historic Charleston and Charleston as a tourist destination were these groups. They were draws um, that, that people, uh, that, that it was a city of slave music um, in, in, in many ways. Um, uh, bastardized version of it um, uh, in the hands of some of these white groups. But nonetheless, that's one of the things that drew people to come here. Um, they wanted to see uh, these performers. Yeah. 
And one of the interesting things that we found is that the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals several times was invited to participate in local festivals and sometimes national festivals at which the Plantation Echoes would be performing. Or later, because the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals lasted into the 50s and 60s. It's actually still around. Oh, they still um, They were invited to participate in festivals in the 50s and 60s with other African-American spirituals groups, and they never wanted to perform on the same program with an African-American group. And our argument is that that African-American group, of course, would have been a pretty uh, uh, compelling kind of argument against what they were doing. So anyway, that's kind of an interesting thing but that we found. But they, as, as gatekeepers of the culture, for, because mm-hmm. they were reigning, they were able to shut down any competition. It seems like I thought I read that. They were able to pretty much just say who could and could not yes. um, yeah. Yeah. You know, sing the spirituals and whatnot. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, it's so funny. Uh, my, my dad is from Wadmala. Um, I'm not a native Charlestonian. I'm a, I'm a Jersey girl. But um, I did have to finish high school down here. And my high school English teacher said the same thing about slavery as we all already heard. But my dad, his roots to Wadmala um, was so interesting because he actually recognized the name of uh, Sam Simmons. Oh, really? um, he rec- right? he, uh, hit one of his either, um, one of our extended family members or just someone he grew up with that he considers family, That's their, that may be their uncle. And it was just so, it was just, they have that connection, sure. um, especially with Wadden Law changing and gentrifying so fastly mm-hmm. as well. Um, it was just amazing to hear that my dad actually knew that name and could, could recall some details about about uh, Mr. Sam Simmons. So I say mm-hmm. his name and I just, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to keep repeating his name because oh, that's, yeah. that's history. Um, yeah, so other gatekeepers. Um, yeah, uh, you know what we're going to do? You want to do Q&A? Um, you, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, no, 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 this is your event. No, no, no. Yeah, let's do some questions. Um, because I'm sure everyone's probably had some questions. And, and yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Mm, go ahead. Uh, but, but you were talking about the, uh, the SB. SBS, yeah. yeah. And was it your intention, because you're going to talk about something a little bit later on, mm-hmm. um, that you had the SBS, and there's some negativity um, certainly associated with the group. Mm-hmm. Did it? In your uh, impression, that it helped to stymie some of the um, embracing the culture, because you made an example somewhere between Fisk University mm. and um, the history of the SBS, right. and the fact that now you're looking at uh, the spirituals associated with a period of slavery, mm-hmm. and even within the African American community, then there was a downplaying of it. So, are you are you asking if the SBS and, played and a the role? Way you wrote it, was, right. your, was your intent to bring that out? Um, that they were essentially. Um, it's almost like you're ashamed of the culture. Maybe I'm going to bring that in that way. <laughs> um, that the that local yeah. African Americans yes. were right. Yes. Yes. Well, that's, yes. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that's that's challenging about writing about the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals is, is compared to some of the other groups. They tended to be more respectful. They had all sorts of problems in their interpretation of the meaning of spirituals. But they were very, they, they took seriously their attempt to faithfully reproduce them and preserve them. Um, uh, and one of the claims that they often made was that they were preserving them because uh, African Americans in the early 20th century weren't interested in doing that. Yeah. Right. And so we wanted to make a point that that was not true. Yeah. That there were African Americans right. who, plenty of people who were performing them, 
like the Fist Jubilee singers, yeah. um, like students at Avery. In, so in Charleston, it would have been students at Avery. They off they had their own spirituals group, and they would perform around the city. Um, so there. So it's not true to say that no African American in Charleston wanted to keep and preserve these spirituals. It was true, though, that there were kind of demographic and educational trends that were kind of conspiring to potentially threaten them. Because as you get more um, African Americans, say, moving into the city, away from the Sea Islands and going into churches here where you have printed hymnals, for example. You know, this is one of the things that can endanger spirituals. That did happen some, but we found plenty of evidence to suggest that there were African-American churches in town and on the Sea Islands that were preserving them. We did find that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. A good question. Yeah. yeah. Great so question. I, I call them gatekeepers because that's, it feels like, well, that's what they were at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to go back, and unless there's another uh, question anyone have right now. I, want, I wanted to go back to the beginning, um, more toward the beginning of the book. And I was um, the the Calhoun Monument and the the folks' reaction, black folks mm. in particular, reaction to the first Calhoun Monument. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight as, as to that? Because that's a huge. This monument is like the bane of my existence. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, yeah. But go right. ahead. <laughs> you want me to start? Yeah, yeah, you start. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, so the first Calhoun Monument, the one we have today, is the second. Um, uh, the first one was put up in 1887 by the Ladies Calhoun Monument Association, an elite group. They had been planning to put up the monument since the 1850s. You know, Calhoun dies in 1850. They planned to do it since the middle of the 1850s. War happens, this and that. And so they finally erect the monument in 1887. Um, Huge uh, parade, huge celebration. It's unveiled. And almost immediately, local blacks start uh, targeting it. They target it with ridicule. They target it with buckets of paint. They target it with rocks. They target it with bricks. I love it. One little boy, um, there's evidence from the newspaper, one little boy, uh, Andrew Haig, I believe is his name, um, takes a pistol out and and shoots (laughs) at it and accidentally hits a little... Another boy. Oh no! Oh no! Toy pistol. He was fine. fine. (laughs) But 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 um, in a constant sort of uh, campaign, informal campaign, but a campaign of vandalism and ridicule, subjected it to that. uh, And ridicule because (laughs) then when I first saw this picture of this first Calhoun monument, I laughed out loud. Because there were supposed to have been four allegorical figures surrounding this. Initial. Page 102. 102. <laughs> Again, yeah. Thank you. But and uh, to represent justice, history, truth, and the Constitution. Constitution. But they only installed one. And so the image that you see there, it's essentially Calhoun with this woman. He wife. <laughs> And so local African-Americans start calling, if she's justice, she's supposed to be justice, they start calling her he-wife. Calhoun's wife. Calhoun's wife. In Gullah, right? (laughs) Which is funny. (laughs) And so... And we know this because it's printed in the newspaper. There's so many stories about it. Again and again and again. (laughs) So there's vandalism, you know, outright vandalism, and then this mockery that's going on. At the same time, and it, there, you can find it in so many sources from the day. So, 
What happens is that by 1895, the Ladies Calhoun Monument Association says, we never really liked this first statue. Aesthetically, it's not very pleasing to us, which, to be fair. Which there was a lot of evidence that that's true. They didn't like it. They didn't like it. Wasn't it like a finger or like... Yeah, they, they didn't like the way his finger... So his finger was turned up, which was supposed to uh, signal the beginning of a, a speech in kind of classical oratory. People would have known this. Okay. Um, his coat was apparently anachronistic. So anyway, they said, we don't like it. But our argument, based on what we, we found, is that we think that black defacement and ridicule played a large role in the decision to install the second monument, which is much taller. Right. right. This one's about 48 yeah, feet high, it. I think. I can't get to it. I got to be other one's 110. Get up there. Right. <laughs> They're putting it out of the, out of the reach. No, they no. think it, yeah. it didn't work. Um, so we don't have definitive proof that that was a motivating factor, but we feel pretty confident in saying that it you know, played a role. Don't you think? Sure, yeah. absolutely. So that's a lesson. So we just need to rebel a little bit more to get some things well, <laughs> a little bit changed. You know, hopefully, <laughs> we know that the city council has been debating this plaque. Yes. Right. Yeah. And we saw some early language, and we chimed in saying, "Here's what we think." And one of the things that should be included in any text would be the history of the vandalism and defacement and mockery, because it's as central to the history of the monument as anything else. And it's not new. No. You know, that's that's one of the no. stories I think that, that gets it lost, was, that we, yeah. you know, argued that that's been there from the very beginning, that, that, that the local black community has not liked, did not like the first monument and vandalized the second monument as soon as it went up, even if they couldn't always reach it. You and had that, pictures so this, of something, like, didn't you have pictures of that as well, with the spray paint? I thought it was spray yeah, paint. Yeah, oh, so, well, that's of the, oh, of the oh, new oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah right. right. But but And so that right. that has a 130-year history right. shouldn't be lost. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. So what, Calhoun... He had such a, a big impact um, on this area, and he was heralded, you know, buried here, all of that. What was it about Calhoun that connected with so many uh, mm. Charlestonians, right. white, white Charlestonians? Right. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, well, I mean, so Calhoun was a big deal in the 19th century. He was among the leading statesmen in America in the 19th century. He was vice president. He was senator, secretary of war, congressman. He's South Carolina's most famous politician uh, in the 19th century, and so he's not a—he's not from Charleston. In fact, he didn't like Charleston. He, made, he wrote negative things. <laughs> That's the funny they, part. Yeah, all right. He made fun of. Yeah, he didn't like the the, 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 the drinking and celebrating. Um, well, he'll hate it now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he would not like to go on Upper King these days. Um, no, Upper King would not be for him. Uh, right, and the bachelorette parties and all that crazy. Uh, he wouldn't like. But so they they. They decided they wanted to honor him uh, early on because he was had you know this immense stature. But but what we would argue is even more, he was the South, the white South, the enslaved South's most dogged defender. He was a person who who crafted the argument that slavery wasn't something to apologize for in the way that, say, early American leaders who were slaveholders like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, they were embarrassed about slavery. They kept their slaves and benefited from them, but they talked about slavery as a necessary evil, saw it going away. Calhoun stridently, loudly from the Senate floor in the 1830s said, no, I think slavery is a positive good. It's civilizing. It's beneficial. Beneficial not just to slaveholders, but to the enslaved. And, and he saw himself as the South's great defender. And so even though he dies a decade before the Civil War, he is in real, you know, he's the ideological 
godfather see, that's funny, of the Civil War. I, my mind, I never thought that he, I thought he was alive during the Civil. I, right. I, just, I don't know how I got there, but um, yeah. I imagine because he's such a big a big deal, air quotes, um, here in Charleston. I, I thought he was like a central figure in the, the sure. Civil War. Yeah. Let's let, yeah. yeah. Right. And, and you know, and right as, as soon as he dies, Calhoun renamed Boundary Street. It was right. it wasn't Calhoun originally. They renamed it, you know, wow. in, in in the year after. Uh, you know, they they ensure that he's going to be buried here. He wasn't his family didn't want him buried here. Wow. But basically, Charlestonians got their hands on his body and said, oh, wow. you know, we're not giving him up. We're not giving it up. Wow. <laughs> there were so many Calhoun monuments. Right. Oh I wow. Mean, not always statues. Statues. Busts. Busts. Um, Right as the Civil War is ending, there is a newly freed slave woman in the office of the Charleston Mercury. We all know the Charleston Mercury, the long-term conservative conservative paper paper that really beat the drum for secession and war. And she's in there as the Civil War is ending, and a northern newspaper man finds her there and says, you know, that's of Calhoun. And he goes off and does something, and he comes back into that office, and she's destroyed the bus. Oh, wow. Wow. I love that. I'm sorry. There were a lot of tributes to him in the city. Oh, wow. Why was Charleston so fixated on getting this man that even the family... He didn't like it. Who was it living in Charleston that said, we have to have this man? Yeah. Except for, well, well remember, yeah, white Charlestonians on the eve of the Civil War, three out of four. 1850. 1850. Yeah. When he died, he died in 1850. Three out of four white Charleston families owned slaves, which is a higher percentage than the South as a whole. So, you know, the kind of ideological and political commitment to slavery in Charleston was like, went to 11. Right. You know, right. it was really, really central to. He was. That's right. That's right. He, he was really their champion. Was. He was their champion. Yeah. Right. So you had a question, Mecca. Was Charleston at that time Yes, yeah. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. It, it was it, it was it was one. I mean, there were other places. Uh, certainly, New Orleans, New Orleans had its would would have uh, could claim that as well. But it was it was the, it was the 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 playground of the planter class. It was the place that uh, wealthy planters from you know Sea Island cotton plantations, rice plantations, or in the upcountry had cotton plantations. South Carolina into Georgia and other parts uh, of uh, the Deep South would come to Charleston. They have second third, fourth, fifth homes yeah. in Charleston. Um, they would come here uh, in the winter. They would come here for what was it called race week, but it was really more like a month, a month and a half. Right. So race horses Don't do at, horse races right. up at, at the Washington Racecourse. Right, which, which was Hampton, what, Park. Hampton Park, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Huge balls and celebrations, you and me- then they would come again in the yeah, summer. You mentioned a big opulent dinner uh, with, like, turkeys and all these, you know, this, I don't know if I can't remember the, yeah, yeah, yeah right. but um, so the people would come here and just, uh, even in the summer, they would just choose to come here and just. Right. It, it was it. It just was it up. So it was like a. Um, is it like the Hamptons? Of yeah. The South, yeah. I, guess? I, I think know. that's a way to think I about guess, it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It's the Hamptons of the South. That sounds right. horrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you know the first vote for secession was here in Charleston. Oh really? Hmm. And that's critical. I mean that says a lot about the commitment to slavery. His and nickname is Secession Bill. Yeah. What? Oh, oh yeah, that road. Yes, yeah, so that's. Yeah, so we call uh, 
we argue and call uh, Charleston the capital of American slavery. Right. When, and I think it's it has it. It's that's sort of an inarguable point. I, I you know it was the center of the transatlantic uh, slavery, at least right. for what would become the United States. It was the center of the domestic, one of the centers of the domestic slave trade that sends you know at least just from Charleston, tens of thousands of people down to New Orleans, down to the Deep wow. South. It had an enslaved majority for most of its history. It was the place where the Civil War started. It's the place where South Carolina politicians led the ideological defense of slavery. It was the capital of American so, slavery. So were other states jockeying for that number one spot? I think I read that like in the book. Like There were some other states like, nah, nah, we, we the best. We the human trafficking. I think New Orleans, New Orleans can make their own argument. Yeah. Virginia, right? Virginia was one, too. Sure, Richmond, sure. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it's no coincidence that the capital of American slavery becomes the cradle of the Confederacy. Right? Right. There's a direct line from A to B, I think. I saw a hand somewhere. Yeah, and I'm just going to repeat it for the for the. Yeah, please repeat it back so we can think about it. I know I haven't. Well, for the for the podcast, Mike can't. Yeah, who can't hear the mic? But you asked basically, what does this erasure do? Like, what? How did it play into the after the after the massacre specifically? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because you you take it there in the book. You actually. Yeah. So here's one thing that I'm that's on the tip of my brain and because we talked about this we were here in March and April um, watching from afar it's from California it seems like Charleston is into the reconciliationist narrative yes. post Emmanuel mm-hmm. some Charlestonians yeah. um, the official narrative right? right and that has been interesting to watch from the sidelines do you think that that is fair Mm -hmm. so that there has been a degree of whitewashing of what it meant the trauma of what happened in the city you know we're charleston strong we can get through this uh we're gonna be fine and i think that is a continuation of the whitewashing tradition and that was my pushback that was my pushback um just me, um, I had recently moved back to the area, mm-hmm. and it was one that was you know a traumatic event. And the response while people applauded it and people celebrated it, I was very sad mm-hmm. because I believed it was it was a whitewashing, and it was um, this narrative that was that was perpetuated. That and I wrote about this in the city paper. You know, justice shouldn't require black acquiescence. They mm-hmm. were almost pleased that blacks didn't take to the streets, and they would have every right. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, Dylan Roof was captured and whatever, we would have had every right to stand up and say, you know what, this is a culminating moment. Um, and it, 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 it could have been. It could have been a great moment. And not, not to say that there weren't great things that came of it, but I, I was disappointed by how that narrative of reconciliation, which I hate that word because, right, and that's why mm-hmm. I mentioned it, but, yeah, that narrative of reconciliation, it's not, that's not the right word. It's, it's, it's telling the truth. Yeah. And um, you shouldn't have to hold hands and walk across. Not to, mm-hmm. not to dismiss anyone who took part in that because it was a healing, and that yeah. was very important to have a show of solidarity. But to applaud those for being passive and, and not taking to the streets. Um, well, there's an yeah. implicit criticism of right. when people are um, more vocal or, right. or demand yeah, more. Right. And it also right. it, it echoes 
um, a narrative that Charleston has long told about earlier mo divisive moments like in its racial past, movement. like the civil rights movement. Charleston right. has long told the story that there, there that there wasn't any, well, first of all, that, that they did um, uh, Jim Crow and segregation in a, in a softer way, in a nicer way, um, uh, which is not true, right. um, and, and that, that there wasn't any struggle, you know, uh, civil rights struggle, that there wasn't a hospital worker strike here in, um, in the late 60s. Uh, you know, it, it's part of that sort of story that Charleston likes to tell about itself that's not accurate. That, you know, there, yeah. there, there are elements that are true. There was hand-holding across the bridge, yeah, right? right, right. Um, but, but that leaves other things out. Yeah. I think that's what I'm talking about, the hand-helding. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah make it. Yeah, turned into, like, this huge, huge, huge part, which I, I don't know, I've, I've definitely struggled with that. I struggled. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we weren't here for that. I think those moments are very difficult. You know, you're responding, in it's it's a traumatic moment, right? And I I, I don't, I don't want to criticize anybody who was Me there. Um, just to say that from afar, we've noticed it as a part of this pattern that we are talking about right. in the book. Right. Right. Like, it would have been fun. It would have been really interesting to hear conversations in and around. Well, we know that the, the Confederate flag came down after Bree Newsom <laughs> took took charge, you know, because black women will do it. Um, and um, but I would love to hear more discussion about the, uh, the Heritage Act being repealed. Like, something substantive that actually would impact yeah. black lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know, so I, I that's where I, my, my pushback would have been. And again, not to you know, it was a, it was a moment of healing. It was essential to, to so many people. I wouldn't. It was performative, and I, that's why I took exception to. So it was um, very performative, and there was no justice. There, to me, there was no. There were no outcomes that really benefited Black folk mm. here, mm -hmm. and descendants of. Um, mm -hmm. I think Africans. that's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's fair. Anyone else have a question? Yeah, another one. Textbooks. Women had power. Yes. Um, and rewriting textbooks and things like that, and especially with the um, the education, the educational field of South Carolina, like South Carolina, like uh, ranking in a lot of kind of like lower levels. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I, well, and everywhere, you probably have seen in the last six months to a year that every three weeks there's another story about an eighth grader coming home with an assignment about slavery. Yeah. You know. Why is this Yeah. Well, you know, even so we're in Fresno, California, which is California. Yeah. But uh, about six weeks ago, there was a, um, a ball at a local middle school that marked the end of the Civil War unit for the seventh graders or eighth graders? Eighth graders. Eighth graders, I think. It was a ball, Civil War ball. And so the students were encouraged to dress in period attire, so the young women were coming in their Scarlett O'Hara stuff. 
And the young boys were coming in Union and Confederate costumes. With Confederate flags. With Confederate flags. In Fresno. In Fresno. (laughs) And dancing and having a ball with all that evokes with Moonlight and Magnolias. Moonlight and Magnolias, which is in and of itself problematic. But the, the very idea that at the end of the Civil War, Confederates and Unionists would have gone to the same ball. <laughs> right, right. That's what they did in Charleston. Well. Mm. With the raising of the flag, on, raising the flag over Fort Sumter. Unionists. Church. Well, there, no, there, there are, there are, there were some, some Charleston ladies who, who, but there are also lots of, there are also lots of letters of other white Charleston ladies saying, I cannot believe that so and so went to this ball. So, um, uh, but, but yeah, yeah, right. Well, that, and that's the point, right? Well, so I, to, to get back to the to the point about this particular ball, that's a reconciliationist narrative that the UDC pushed, right? That the Civil War wasn't about slavery. We all fought just for states' rights and noble constitutional principles. And the point is, it's everywhere. So to your question, yes, did you be involved locally? Absolutely. But I would not, I wouldn't uh, frame it as just a Southern problem necessarily or you know, a Charleston problem. It's, it's, it's in where we live. Well, and this Southern Poverty Law Center has recently come out with a great uh, report on how, focusing specifically on how schools, how poorly schools do at teaching uh, slavery. And it includes a list of why, that what are the challenges, and also a list of here are some resources and here are some approaches. Um, and so I know that I just read, God, I can't remember where it was, but just recently I think it was schools in Denver have adopted um, uh, some of their responses and are trying to rework their history curriculum to respond to this report. Um, so I think more moves along those lines would be would be helpful but yeah getting involved with school boards absolutely, well, yeah. absolutely. Sh- and shameless plug I, i'm gonna do a time check yeah okay. same as shameless plug um as you guys know as as a leader of uh charleston activist network that's the flyer in front of the table soul to soul is the black and latinx community outreach initiative that we're launching because just like that uh we want to get people civically engaged and involved so um i'm actually um just going to plug that in um uh, excuse the iconography. This is not mine. This is theirs. But we're going to take some donations so you can pass this around. You want to get some donations for Soul to Soul? Oh, oh yeah. So yeah, I said pardon the iconography. I'm not. This is. I got. You know, whatever. It was here. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's cream of wheat. So uh, yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Better than Aunt I guess. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, so, <laughs> but that's the good, that's the, I mean, you can't escape it, though. I think those images, you can't escape. How many, how much time we, do we have, just real quick? Uh, okay, so you want to wrap Maybe up? Maybe there's a question here. here. She's been holding her hand up for. Okay. And, okay. And then we'll wrap. Yeah. yeah. Start signing books. Yeah, yeah sure. Start here, and then, and then. Oh. oh, yeah, who didn't ask a question yet? I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, you're right here. Yeah, and I might repeat your question just for the listeners who don't have your. Sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, so as a, somebody from a non-Charlestonian, I quickly learned the phrase from off. From uh, off, yeah. Which I think is relatively unique to Charleston. Um, and that, it gets at this skeptic, skepticism of outsiders. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious if you guys personally experienced that in doing your research. And also, does that skepticism serve a purpose to protect certain types of narratives? Mm. Is it oh. intentional? Um, well... Did we ourselves? Uh, no, I don't think so. 
Because the, we were mainly uh, in archives with archivists who desperately want you to use their material because they need <laughs> your number. So right. I don't think we... Uh, yeah, this, I, I don't know if this exactly gets at your question, but one of the interesting things, experiences we've had elsewhere, like when we talked, we've talked about our book in places like Fresno where we live, it's that they're like, do they let you back into Charleston having written that? <laughs> <laughs> we get that everywhere we go. No, but that's serious, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're like, you realize it's not another planet. I mean, you know, but, but there are these stereotypes, right, of what the South is right. and, and, and what it's not. And they see it as monochromatic. They see it as monochromatic. Uh, and so that has been really interesting to confront when we're out of Charleston. Like, they're not going to let you in. They're going to throw tomatoes at you. And we're like, no, 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 no. There are plenty of people here who <laughs> oh, yeah. want to hear, you right. know, mm -hmm. the truth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You had a question right here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just to kind of end on a ray of hope that maybe the yeah. future will be better than the past. <laughs> okay. Sure, sure. And that we're, perhaps we are learning uh, what are your thoughts about the new Afro-American mm. uh, museum that's right. coming up and the celebration of the African-American history through arts and literature? Mm -hmm. We've had lots of uh, historical novels like The Cigar Factory yeah. And, yeah. and The Invention of Wings and mm -hmm. others and Jonathan Green's marvelous mm -hmm. uh, fine arts. And, I mean, there is positivity yeah. Yeah. that's bringing people together and uh -huh. hopefully... And so, as an as an example of that, we were at the old Slave Mart Museum today. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. Oh, that's in the book. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm which sorry. my second visit in a week. You know, we come back and we just, like, do Cold all these things routines. a million times because we want to see what's going on, right? So I was talking to the director today, and he said that their numbers are skyrocketing. Number of visitors. Number of visitors, sorry. Yes, uh, which I thought was really remarkable. He said that last year they had 64,000 visitors. Wow. Um, and that as of May, they were on track to top that by some percentage. So I, I agree with you. I think that there are... And that are was up from twenty or 30,000 four or five years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, extraordinary. I really right. that the leadership of Mayor Joe mm -hmm. Riley had an awful lot of Right. Yep. Local government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like no, I think you're right. And One of the things that well, we struggled a lot with how... how what First of all, what note to end the book on. Right. Again, that changed a lot over the last few years. But also, one of the things we do, um, I think it's fair to say, every time we've come back, when we, when Charleston has changed more in terms of starting, and I want to emphasize starting, to confront its enslaved past, it's changed more and improved more over the last decade than it did over the previous hundred years. Yes. And so I think both of those things I would want to underscore, that not much changed for a long time, but a lot has changed since the mid-2000s. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's still a long way to go, and um, I think the new museum is certainly going to continue that trajectory. Um, I know that there are critics of it, and they, yeah. they have some, some, some yeah. real solid arguments, and I'd, I'd hope that their voices would be listened to and, and some of their criticism would be incorporated into the approach the museum takes but but just wandering the streets when we lived here in 2005 2006 you didn't hear walking tour guides they didn't talk about slavery i've four or five times in the last few times we've come here i've overheard them talking about slavery and i'm not following them around i'm just happy to walk past them that that was not a topic the everyday guide talked about 10 years ago certainly 30 years ago certainly 40 years ago that is a that is a significant change mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. 
So, I want to be hopeful too. I wanted to be hopeful the morning of June 17, 2015, when we were sitting with Joe Riley. Who was very hopeful. He was very hopeful. He was talking about how he, at that point, had raised the $25 million from the city and the state to go towards the museum and how excited he was about the museum. And then the next morning, we woke up to that news. So, um, so I want to be hopeful, too. Um, I think it's important that we continue to grapple with what we do beyond memory and how we use memory in concrete ways. Uh, getting back to this issue we were talking about earlier, policies, right. politics, and that right. kind of thing. And I think change. a museum can do that, right? I mean, right. if we're talking about five million people coming to Charleston every year, going to a museum. And if that's a center point where they're coming. Yeah, they right. if that changes their view of the past, it might change their view of the present and the future. Yeah. I think the vision of Absolutely. Of all races. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think as as a woman of color, um, whose last name is Gadsden, mm. sure. um, whose father's from Wadmalaw, who was raised in Jersey but finished high school here in in, um, in Charleston, you know, um, these conversations to me are never. I love them. I welcome them because it's the truth, and it always gives me hope when the truth is being told. So I would say that too. Like sometimes, the, you know, it, it might be a little heavy, and it might be a little sad to read some of the stories. But I think that if you continue to spread this truth, that that's the hope is that people who read this book and share this book and and give it to others, mm -hmm. um, that's the hope. So. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I appreciate you for uh, both Ethan and Blaine for being here and telling us about this 150-year-old reckoning with the Americans' original America's original sin. Um, I want to say special thanks to Do Work Media. Can we give them a round of applause? Um, both Vaughn and, and Emeka, thank you so much. Um, I, I didn't know how seriously you would take me. I'm so happy that you made it here. Um, also, itinerant, literate books. I want to say thank you so much. Give him a round of applause. Um, it, yeah. Seriously, as an activist, I always say that uh, activism is not just one thing. This right here is activism, activist space. It's a disruption because you are disrupting that narrative that's being sold to so many tourists that come here and so many people who live here. So thank you for the work you do. We look forward to your new brick and mortar store. Where's that, where's that gonna be? Park Circle. Oh, opening in July. Woo! Are you are you gonna keep the are you gonna keep the trailer? <laughs> Good. Good. Absolutely, and we'll definitely. I think Do Work Media and, and Charleston Activist Network is definitely gonna partner uh, with you in the future, especially if we're telling truths. <laughs> We can get some juicy books through some novels. We do that. Too. Yeah, some good. This was juicy. This is very juicy. Um, I also want to just say again, my name is Mika Gadsden. I am the leader of Charleston Activist Network. Um, I'm co I'm spearheading a number of initiatives to help disrupt spaces and, and include the voices of people of color. So you can find out more about me and the Charleston Activist Network and how you can continue to give and help Soul to Soul and other projects um, we have coming up. We also have a trip. 
planned for the, um, we're going down to the lynching museum in September. Okay. Um, so it's a bus ride. It's going to include the lynching museum, uh, the memorial, the museum that's adjacent, and also the Tuskegee Airmen okay. um, Memorial. It's a three-day trip in September. Um, you can find out about that on Facebook. So Charleston Activist Network on Facebook, charlestonactivistnetwork.com um, online, and and all that good stuff. Do Work Media, what's your uh, your website? It's doworkmedia.com is our website. Yep. You can find do, do Work Media on Facebook, Do Work Media, D-O-Work. <laughs> do, right. <laughs> we got it. It's, it's way shorter than Charleston Activist Network. <laughs> and, um, and you have, like, a host of podcast offerings on there. It's Progressive Black Voices, so get ready, y'all. Y'all got to buckle up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, like myself, but but Charleston needs those voices here. That's why I wanted to have them here because they're doing great work, pun intended. And um, you know, it's a democratization of the spaces that were, were traditionally white-held spaces. So we're helping to retell these truths, and um, Do Work Media is doing their part with that. And your book, let's talk about it real quick. So are you guys touring? Or is there any anything coming up with the book or anything like that you want to promote? Sure, for anyone listening yeah, out there. For anyone listening to my podcast. We'll be in Chapel Hill Monday, Monday night at Flyleaf Books. Okay. We'll be at Malaprops in Asheville, North Carolina on Wednesday night. Oh, wow. High Point on Tuesday. Oh, right. Forgot about High Point. High Point Sunrise Books. Yeah. Sunrise Tuesday. And then the following week, we'll be at the Margaret Mitchell House of the Atlanta History Center oh, on, on Tuesday. Tuesday. Wow. And you have and a website? And then in New Orleans and we in Mississippi. Do and we do have a website. Yeah. DenmarkVCsGarden.com. Okay, no apostrophe. No, apost no apostrophe. <laughs> okay. Where yes. you can find out all of about all of our appearances. Yeah. Thank you so much. So much. And please read the book, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>
the content you create, the voices you amplify. It's such a, an amazing and bold endeavor and I'm, I'm here for it and I look forward to future work from you. So thank you, Do Work Media. Thank you, Emeka and Vaughn, for all of your ideas and for your just your help making this live podcast a reality. And for everyone else, thank you for listening. This was a longer episode, but I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you were able to either break it up or listen in, in bits and pieces. But it, it definitely was a, a an amazing conversation. Um, so thank you for sitting tight with us and supporting this content. As always, you can find me online. Um, you can follow the Charleston Activist Network on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just Google our name and also at charlestonactivistnetwork.com. And if you need to reach out to me directly, um, please feel free to email me, Mika. Uh, but my email address is T-A-M-I-K-A at charlestonactivistnetwork.com. You can also support this podcast content uh, via Patreon. And so you can search for us on Patreon as well. So until next time, everyone take care. See you next episode.